0: You're listening to the AFM News Hour on Asheville FM at WSFM LP 103.3, Asheville. This is the AFM News Hour. I'm news correspondent Andrew Rainey. Across the United States, corporate action has drawn the concern of citizens across the political spectrum regarding the health and livelihood of the communities we live in. Many find protest action unsatisfactory in changing the action of said corporations. Here to speak with us about how some communities in the U.S. have restricted corporate action through community rights bills is the program director and lead trainer of Community Rights U.S. out of Portland, Oregon, Paul Cienfuegos.
1: My name is Paul Cienfuegos. I'm a longtime community organizer and workshop leader based in Portland, Oregon.
0: I wonder if you could describe a little bit for someone who has not heard of community rights bills, what that entails.
1: Yeah, the community rights movement launched in 1999 in rural Pennsylvania, where a small group of uh, conservative farmers in Wells Township, Pennsylvania, discovered that they were going to be the recipients of a 15,000 head factory farm of hogs in this rural farming community. And they were not pleased with that at all. And so they contacted a public interest law firm that was based in Pennsylvania to see how they could stop it. Basically, What came out of that was a movement that has now spread nationwide, where 200 communities and counties in eight states have passed local ordinances or laws that put us back in a proper constitutional relationship between the people and our government institutions and our business institutions, which is that we, the people, have authority to govern and that institutions in a democratic republic are supposed to serve us directly. And so we're a movement of people that are stepping out of what we tend to call conventional activism, where we're not just trying to stop the latest harmful corporate proposal in our community or our county or our state, like a oil pipeline or a clear cut of an old growth forest or a fracking operation or a big box store or a factory farm, these things that conventional activism tends to fight just one at a time and we tend to lose because of the way that we take them on and the community rights movement is about looking at coming at it from a really different strategic viewpoint which is that corporations really need to be in service to us rather than these giant goliaths that we're you know freaked out about and dependent on and so We go from pleading with and making demands of corporations to say, please stop harming us so much, to a whole different paradigm where we see ourselves as the ultimate decision makers in our own communities and say, we have the right to govern ourselves, we have the right to protect our own communities' health and welfare, human and otherwise, where we live, and if corporations are not doing that service appropriately, we have the right to say that activity is prohibited in our community. So in conventional activism, we tend to regulate corporate activities through the regulatory agencies. And in our movement, we say, we're going to prohibit this because it's harmful to people in nature and we don't want it to happen. And we're claiming the authority to do that. So it's a completely different paradigm than most environmental, social justice, and labor organizing currently happening in the US.
0: So, what problems exist with that uh, typical strategy of regulatory measures that are drawn for corporate action?
1: Conventional activism works to pack regulatory hearings and have hundreds of thousands or millions of people respond to a regulatory agency's uh, proposal for a corporate activity, assuming that if we simply work hard enough and show enough opposition to a corporate act- activity being proposed, the agency will do the right thing and will say no. And unfortunately, that's all based on a mythology. And the truth is that the whole regulatory system of law started, believe it or not, in the 1880s, when the Attorney General of the United States met with the leaders of the first set of giant corporations in the country, which were railroad industry directors. And they came up with a new system of law that would be that was designed to look as if it was a bold response to citizen outrage against the harms being caused by the railroad industry, but in fact was intended to just stifle citizen activism and outrage against the railroad industry, to funnel it into a new agency. And the first regulatory agency was the Interstate Commerce Commission. And in fact, I can read you a a fascinating quote from that era. This first agency created by the federal government was, quote, to be a sort of barrier between the railroad corporations and the people, unquote. Charles Adams, president of Union Pacific Railroad Company at the time, said, what is desired is something having a good sound, but quite harmless, which will impress the popular mind with the idea that a great deal is being done when in reality very little is intended to be done, unquote. So in other words, the public was going to be pacified with laws that sounded tough, but placed all the discretion in the hands of the regulatory agencies. And what's so fascinating is our regulatory agencies tend to be led by directors from the corporations being regulated, and regulatory law tends to be written by the industries being regulated. And so the whole regulatory system of law is what we call corporate turf. So we can't actually win on corporate turf. So if we're going to stop these totally legal but harmful corporate activities that happen as just you know background normal across the country, we have to step out of corporate turf and create laws, systems of law that we control, that we the people control, not systems of law that the corporate state controls. So our ordinances dive outside of what we call the, the cage of allowable activism and into what we call community rights-based lawmaking.
0: And if a corporate entity does fail to meet regulations, what consequences do they face?
1: Well, it's it's pretty tragic, really. Normally what happens if a corporation violates the law these days is that they're slapped with a fine, if even that. And corporate fines are tax deductible. So that means we, the people, through our taxes end up paying their fines. Their attorney fees to defend against the action from the government those fees are tax deductible. So we pay the lawyers bills. And because our system of law shields the directors and the stockholders from any personal liability, all that happens is a fine, which again is paid by us. So one of the really essential parts to understand the community rights movement is historically starting after the American Revolution and going for a full century into the late 1800s, corporations were not limited liability. Directors and stockholders were held fully liable for all the harms and debts caused by the corporate activity. Corporate directors and stockholders had to live in the states where the corporation was chartered. The charters were written by state legislatures, not by the companies. All of their books, all of their financial records were considered public information. And all of this was turned upside down a full century later
0: Could you speak to what that community rights bill looks like and how it gets passed?
1: Yeah, so um, we've helped 200 communities and counties now in eight states to pass community rights ordinances. Um, Each ordinance does three really extraordinary things. The first one is the law bans a particular kind of corporate activity that's being proposed for that town or city or county, which is fully legal under state and federal law but which the community wants to prohibit because from their perspective, it's damaging, it's dangerous to their health and welfare. The second thing that's written into each law is that that sector of corporations, like fracking corporations or logging corporations or whatever, that sector of corporations has its corporate constitutional rights nullified within the city or county boundaries that's passed the law, And the third thing that's embedded in each local ordinance is an enshrining of the right of the local community to govern itself and to protect its health and welfare. And so across the country, communities have banned fracking. They've banned water withdrawal for putting little plastic bottles. They've banned factory farms. They've banned uh, the dumping of sewage sludge from cities onto rural farmland They've banned unsustainable energy production. A county in Oregon just a few weeks ago banned the aerial spraying of pesticides on forests after they've been logged, and a whole variety of other things are also tackled in these ordinances. But a town, a city, or a county can pass these, and about half of the states in the United States have initiative and referendum rights, which means that the public can make law directly through the ballot box. And about half do not. So in the, in the states that allow the local communities to make laws directly through the ballot box, that's, that tends to be how we progress. But most of the 200 communities that have passed these in eight states are not ballot initiative states. And so in those cases, the town council or the county commission or board of supervisors passes them through their meeting.
0: Do these bills ever come in conflict with state or federal laws?
1: Well, now this is where it gets very interesting because there are these three structures of law that currently make it illegal for a community to pass a law to protect itself from harmful corporate behavior. And our ordinances are a direct frontal challenge to these three structures of law, which very briefly are corporations exercising their corporate personhood and other constitutional rights. The state Claiming what's called state preemption, where the state preempts the local government from passing protective laws at the local level, and something called Dillon's Rule, which is named after John Forrest Dillon, a late 1800s Iowa State Supreme Court justice, who came with the idea, came up with the idea that the proper relationship between state government and local government is that of parent to child and that the local government has no inherent governing authority beyond the authority granted to it by the state government. So when you put those three structures of law when you put them together you end up with a local government that feels powerless to do anything. So we again step outside of that box and we make the claim that these legal that these structures of law Are fundamental violations of the right of we the people, as the sovereign, to govern ourselves and protect our health and welfare, as established in the preamble to the US Constitution and in all of our state constitutions. And therefore, we're gonna step outside of that structure of law and pass local laws anyway. And what conventional attorneys will say is, well, that's all well and good, but you really can't do that because it's illegal. And so what's intriguing is that our ordinances that have been passed in 200 communities all are illegal in the sense that they currently violate state preemption, Dillon's rule, and corporate rights. But we, so, we see those structures of law as a fundamental violation of our constitutional rights. So we do so anyway. And what's so fascinating is that of the 200 communities that have already passed our laws, only about 5% of them have ever been legally challenged. So approximately 190 communities prohibited certain corporate activities, and the laws have never been challenged, and the corporate activities were stopped before they came. The goal is for the public to start understanding that our rights are being violated all the time, And the only way for us to start getting them back is to start challenging these structures of law that violate our rights. And let me just read to you uh, an excerpt from your North Carolina state constitution. Article one, declaration of rights, section two, sovereignty of the people. And I'm quoting, all political power is vested in and derived from the people. All government of right originates from the people is founded upon their will only and is instituted solely for the good of the whole i mean that's an extraordinary paragraph section three internal government of the state the people of this state have the inherent sole, and exclusive right of regulating the internal government and police thereof and of altering or abolishing their constitution and form of government whenever it may be necessary for their safety and happiness, unquote. That's extraordinary language, and it's a reminder that government is required to serve us, has duties and responsibilities to us, and just because the state government or a court is telling us you can't do that, the reality is that those government institutions are required to serve us they are our subordinates constitutionally and so that's the basis of our of our work
0: so if listeners were interested in learning more about how community rights bills work examples of other towns cities or counties using these um are there any resources you can offer to learn more
1: yeah there are two outstanding websites um I am working with colleagues here in Portland, Oregon, and we're just about a month from launching Community Rights US, which is gonna be a national organization that supports local communities to pass these laws. And our website is communityrights.us, rather than .org, it's .us. And one of the groups that has been instrumental uh, prior to our founding, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, and its website is the acronym CELDF.org.
0: You yourself are giving different classes uh, nationwide. From what I understand, you'll be coming into Asheville also.
1: I will be leading my weekend workshop in Asheville, North Carolina, August 11, 12, and 13. That's a Friday evening, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. I'll be returning to lead a weekend workshop in South Carolina in the Columbia area, in October, as well as in Athens, Georgia. And I will be in Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota a couple times before the end of the year as well. So yes, I am on the road a couple weeks a year leading these workshops and helping local groups to start community ordinance campaigns.
0: This has been Paul and Fuegos out of Portland, the program director and lead trainer of Community Rights U.S. Paul, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks. To find more information about Asheville Community Rights Bill Action and upcoming classes from Paul Siena Fuegos, email Ben Harper1984 at gmail.com.